Thanks for tuning into the Live It podcast. My name is Jason Walton, the host. I'm really excited about the content that we're going to be sharing because it's going to be extremely helpful to entrepreneurs and to other high achievers. As entrepreneurs, we can choose to engage in producing a good or a service that makes the world a better place, enriching the lives of everyone associated with it. Let's not settle for anything less. In addition, I'm gonna regularly challenge each of us to increase our awareness of the needs of people around us, and then to boldly take action. We're gonna make the world a better place, not just through the goods and services we produce, and not just through the jobs we create, but by flooding the world with love and kindness. The information my guests are gonna be sharing on the podcast is gonna be based on our life experiences. It's not meant to be warranted as absolute truth. We don't stand behind the accuracy of the things that we're sharing, sorry. Feel free to fact check and do some homework on your own. It'll go a long way and it'll be a very useful exercise. Thanks for being a part of the Livet community. I hope you embrace and enjoy the journey. Our guest on this week's Livet podcast is my good friend, Hayden Schapp. Hayden is a vice president of sales with Moxie Pest Control. How about that? We actually work for the same company. There you go. And uh, I know Hayden extremely well, and it's really an honor to have him on the program, not just because he's a qualified and capable entrepreneur, not just because he's an exceptional high achiever, but this is an exceptionally good principle-centered man who I have a lot of respect for. So uh, look forward to, to our discussion today, Hayden. Thanks, Jason. It means a lot coming from you. <laughs> You're too kind. Thank you. So why sales, Hayden? Really, I can only speak from my own experience with doing sales, right? But from my perspective, sales is the fast track to gaining a set of skills that will be a catalyst to achieving whatever else someone wants in life in general, business related, certainly. But um, as in my experience in sales, it's been really fascinating to see how it bleeds over into other things that I feel are much more important, like relationships with family members, ability to persuade and influence people in any other setting outside of business that someone might care about. So for me early on, I kind of got this inkling that that would be the case if I could learn this skill set that you had talked about and originally introduced me to of persuasion and influence and doing it in a principle-centered way, that that could be a huge catalyst for any other type of success that I would want to see in my life. Um, so sales in general is, I think, the fast track to that. Yeah. If it's done the right way, obviously. Yeah, yeah, no, I completely agree. And it's something, as you know, I talk about quite a bit in that selling is happening in everything that we do, in every role that we have. I would challenge someone to say, in what relationship is there not some form of selling? Yeah. In what job is there not some form of selling? Would right. you agree? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, to deny that you're not always either selling something or being sold something would be to just deny the fundamental laws of human interaction that are at play. Yes. Always. Right. Even if you're saying thank you. <laughs> I mean, uh, if you're not very good at saying thank you, it can actually be offensive. Yeah, exactly. But if you, <laughs> if you are good at expressing genuine gratitude, I mean, really genuine, then then that's selling, right? Yeah. To, to, to tell the person so that the person feels... Your gratitude. And I'm, I'm using that as just a simple example. Right. Am I convinced that you actually mean it when you say anything? Gratitude, when you're upset, when you're happy, you know, or claiming to be with your words, but does your tone of voice and your body language match that? All of that is persuading someone to believe something or not. And to the extent that you're good at that, like your proficiency in persuading someone to believe how you actually feel is, I think, a first step in being able to um, actually influence someone. Yeah. I mean, I think most people think of sales as a job that happens when you're just trying to attract new clients. <laughs> right. To which I would say, sure, part of what sales is are the words and techniques we use when we're trying to acquire customers. Right. But we're also selling when we're interviewing. Yeah. We're all, and I mean both sides of the table, the interviewer <laughs> and the interviewee. Right. Right. We're also selling when we're a project leader and we have our team. Yeah. We're selling when we're doing group activities and building team camaraderie. Yeah. We're selling when we're, we're trying to make people feel part of, of, to feel valued, whether that's in a family unit or at work or anywhere else. Right. Selling, selling, selling. <laughs> yeah. So if, if you're a doctor, you're selling in the room, in the rooms where you're working. And when you're telling the patients what's wrong with them, if you're not good at selling, they need, might need 14 different opinions. Yeah, really. I, may I, not, they may not be even doing what you're asking them to do, right? I mean, like, hey, you need to do this. And if it's not convincing, then maybe they're not following your advice. Right. 
I have an interesting experience with this recently. Actually, I was in a doctor's appointment and my doctor's an incredible salesman. He doesn't realize it, but he is. And <laughs> so I was asking him a question like, are you sure that if I do this certain thing that it will lead to this outcome? And he just looked at me and kind of blank stare and was like, I've been doing this a long time. I'm absolutely sure. It's like that guy's good at he's that's sales right there, right? I remember very persuasive. I remember when I was 15, I I injured a knee and I went to one of the doc. I, I waited for for those who know who he is. I waited for Kareem Abdul Jabbar to get off the X-ray table. True story. That's awesome. Doctor Job's clinic in L.A. That's awesome. And I mean, I, I I could even see him, but I waited. Kareem got off the X-ray table, and then I went in and had the X-rays done. Had the doctor look, and and after I was diagnosed with the the, the torn ligament that I had, and eventually got back to where I was doing therapy again, the doctor said, "Listen, this is what you." can do and this is what you cannot do. And I could tell he didn't believe that I was gonna do those things. And he would say, <laughs> it's like, I know most patients don't do that. And so here's what I want you to do. And I, I stopped him after like the third time. And I said, I need to know that what you're telling me to do is right. And you're not trying to compensate because I'm not gonna listen to you because mm. of your past experience. So I said, I am going to do exactly what you tell me to do. So tell me exactly what I need to do. <laughs> yeah. And that was only coming from the way he was communicating. He wasn't selling me that he trusted me as a patient. I thought he was compensating. Interesting. I don't know if you've ever had that experience, but. Oh, yeah. I mean, this contrasted to my what I just shared about my doctor currently. It's like previous ones, not not so confident that what they were saying I, I would, would actually work. But what you're saying is more nuanced, which is interesting. It's like he didn't believe you would actually do it and therefore was not... Uh, almost not confident in saying in uh, portraying the, that message to you, like do, do this, this is going to work. Yeah. I mean, and I've had sense. other instances with uh, where maybe I wasn't doing a very good job of selling where I've been working with attorneys or bankers or whomever. And they've, they, some of them are really good at saying, what are your objectives here? And I'll say, these are my objectives. And maybe they don't like those objectives, even though it's none of their business or they think I'll regret them. Hmm. And so, they'll say, that's a bad idea. You shouldn't do that because of this. Mm. And I'll listen and I'll say, okay, let me see if I understand you correctly. You think it's a bad idea because of this. Yes. Okay. If I don't value that, what you just said, this is what I value. Then is it a good idea? And they'll, they look perplexed and go, yeah, I guess so. And then later they'll come back with the same comment. And I think, was I not very good at selling the first time <laughs> that I understood your point? Right. And yeah. Interesting. Anyway, so uh, that then that makes me self evaluate. You know what I can do better. You mentioned yeah. something though a, a couple minutes ago that was really close to me, mm. and I think it's important. And you talked about uh, principle centered selling. Maybe right. you can elaborate. What do you mean by that? Well, <clears throat> I'm a student of Stephen Covey because I'm a I'm a student of Jason Walton. I would say, uh, <laughs> um, and you know, you really introduced me to the Stephen Covey frameworks uh, around principle-centered, insert whatever here, right? Leadership. Principle-centered living. Living. In this case, principle-centered sales or persuasion and influence. What I was referring to with that was when someone gains a competency of being able to persuade and influence, that is an agnostic competency, meaning it can be applied to something that is good or bad. Right. Morally speaking, right? So principle-centered yes. living would say, well, if I'm if I have a competency to persuade you to do something, I also have a moral obligation to only persuade you to do things that are actually in your best interest or that I could tell could be in your best interest. Yeah. Right. Um, so that's what I'm referring to with principle-centered uh sales. And that's why, you know, I, I work with and for you is because that really resonated with me very early on when I was in college and doing sales was, okay, I have this really powerful skill set now, but I don't want to be persuading people to do something that's not in their best interest. That is, there's such a slippery slope there um, of just only gratifying my own selfish needs and not doing what's in others, others' best interest. So, um, I think that kind of encapsulates it for me is, is really doing the work to know what you are persuading someone to do, whether or not it's in their best interest. Yeah, I think there's a hat that people put on sometimes that say, it's not personal, it's just business. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, this yeah. is a hat I could put on to do things that are unethical or immoral. Yeah. To treat people as a means to an end. Right. And Or try to get people to do things that we don't think are in their best interest. Right. Because when I put on my business hat, 
<laughs> yeah. then, then I have free license to do anything. Yeah. And so maybe it's when we're letting someone go and we say, well, it's not personal, it's just business. It's like, really? That person has a family. That's insulting. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's insulting. Yeah. And yeah. or or in this sales scenario, to view it as it's me against you instead mm. of us together trying to find the best solution for you. Right. And therefore, the way I win in this sales scenario is I'm going to convince you. And if I do, it's not personal, it's just business. Right. And the fact that I may have done several unethical or shady things in the middle uh, yeah. is bad. And and of course, I think we're on the same page that, that we believe that that is damaging to your soul. It just yeah. is because the way you do anything is the way you do everything. Yeah. And so if you treat people as a means to an end, then that just becomes part of who you are at your core, right? Yeah. And it's it's damaging to have that that type of a relationship with your fellow beings, right. men and women. And it always bleeds over into your other roles and relationships, always. And yeah. so the, the theory there is that um, in principle-centered living, to which sales is just a subset. And and right. the theory is in principle-centered living of which sales is just a subset is that um, you can't treat people as a means to an end and say that it's principle-centered. You either have their best interest in mind or 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 you don't. Right. Have have you found in the industry though that it's that it's tempting or that you see people who become tempted to maybe put their own interests ahead of others or or do whatever they feel they need to do even though it's not in someone else's best interest. Yeah, absolutely. And not just because I see it, because I feel like that temptation has always existed for me personally being a hyper competitive person. I've thought about this a lot actually. It's like, why is that? Why is it so tempting for sales reps in general or high achieving sales reps to treat people as a means to an end? Um, it's because there is this element of competition and typically people who are good at sales are also very competitive, good at other things they've done in the competitive realm, sports, et cetera. So it's it, kind of, they're used to doing things that are me against you. Right. Yes. And then when you get into the realm of sales and it's like, you have to, if you're going to be principle centered, you have to transition to, this is not me against you as a customer. This is me trying to see if I can serve you in a way that my product or service makes your life better, that yeah. it's in your best interest. So, I only know that that temptation exists one because I see it, but also because I feel it in myself that I constantly have to be checking myself. Like, am I actually doing what's in someone's best interest here? Yeah. And really re-solidifying that motive. Um, and I do that with our sales reps that we work with as, and especially with our customers. Right. Sure. But, um, you know, I, I thought of this quote by Cecil O. DeMille, who I think that's his name that, uh, made the 10 commandments where yeah, he said, you don't director, very famous. You, you don't yeah, break glory the of Hollywood. Yeah. Right. You don't break the 10 commandments. You break yourself against them. Mm. In this sense, I, I was thinking about how uh, something you mentioned with principle centered leader or uh, principle centered living where you, you can't harness these principles to achieve your own selfish ends because you break yourself against them inherently by doing that. And so it's important to view sales through a principle centered lens. If you're actually going to have a fulfilling life where you're truly persuading people to do things that are in their best interest. Or perhaps here's another perspective. Hmm. The only way that you can harness these true principles and use them toward your own selfish ends is if your own selfish ends is principle-centered living. Meaning hmm. that the end is, I'm going to make sure that I'm doing right but and taking care of other people and not using this as a means to an end yeah. and focusing on the betterment of the relationships. And I think if there's harmony hmm. between what your own personal goals are, then then that's pretty healthy. I mean, you... you, you uh, Interesting. Much better put than what What's I said. That? I love that. Yeah, I love that. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a, I know a lot of what you do is you're recruiting a lot of people also and managing them. And so you're yeah. a mentor. And that's one of the things I appreciate most about you is the impact that you have on all the young women and the young men uh, who, who, with whom we're able to work with and train. Thank you. As you know, I've been in the industry quite a while. Yeah. And <laughs> uh, a lot of times people, even competitors, will reach out uh, for a little bit of mentoring. Hmm. And especially when they get into trouble. And by trouble, <laughs> I mean financial trouble, don't know how to move forward or run into obstacles. And they just don't know who else to ask. Hmm. Um, there was a time a few years ago where this, this same thing happened within a one-week period. And the thing that happened was one of my competitors that I wasn't close to reached out, said, can I talk to you in confidence? I heard you keep confidences. Of course. Said, I want your help because I want to sell my pest control company. And I need, I like your counsel. 
Let's say, okay, hmm. I need to I need to know whether you have to sell your company to meet cash flow needs or or whether you're just wanting to sell your company. And they said, um, both of them said independently, two different companies did not know each other that they each of them would come talk to me, said, no, I'm good on cash flow needs. I just want to sell the business. Hmm. And so I said, okay, the reason I'm asking you that in the beginning is because everything else we're going to talk about is going to be different. Hmm. So if you're not telling me the truth on that one, then you're in trouble. And both <laughs> cases, they said, okay, I can't pay my sales reps their back ends. I don't have the money to do it. So I worked through them with them and gave them advice I thought would be helpful to them. Within three days, again, this is all the same week. I didn't live in Utah. So this is just one trip to Utah okay. while I was here. Sure. I met at least one rep from each of those their companies that was recruiting to work for me. And in the course of conversations with them, they told me that one of the reasons they liked where they were was because of their the financial security and the deep pockets and how how well they how well they were doing. And I said, when's the last time you had spoken to how close you are to the to the owner of the company? You know, and they told me, and each of them had met with the owner recently and been assured with spreadsheets showing <laughs> how they could pay off their back ends immediately and that there was no financial trouble. And so <clears throat> that's just an interesting ethical discussion, right? Right. So first off, somebody's not telling the truth, right? Maybe the person was lying to me and he didn't really want to sell his company, although both of them did sell their companies shortly thereafter <laughs> to exactly the people that I counseled them to do it to, right? <laughs> and and um, uh, so... Were they just giving misinformation to their salespeople? My my belief is they definitely were. And it's something that I think I see hmm. not just in our industry, but a lot. But I've still struggled with today what my ethical duty was. Hmm. So I didn't communicate in any way to those reps that their boss wasn't being right with them. Hmm. I did the opposite. I, I said, that's great. And immediately felt a tinge of guilt go through me. Because you didn't communicate that to them because the owners of these companies uh, told you these things in confidence. And yeah, they committed your... to me to confidence. And yeah. I think I have a duty to confidence. And I think Shas I <clears throat> they committed me to confidence. And I felt that I had a duty to confidence. Right. And what that means to me is if you share something with me that I otherwise wouldn't have known and someone asked me a question about it, hmm. any tiny little even nonverbal response that I give you and the only reason I gave you that response is because of the confidential information that I have is a breach of trust. That's how I see it. Right. Interesting. So when the person said to me, <clears throat> sorry. So when the sales reps let me know how excited they were and what deep pockets their, their owners had and that they were never going to sell their businesses, I just said, that's great. It sounds like that's a great place to be. That's right where you want to be. And that resolved the issue. And it, and it pretty much finished the recruiting process. Hmm. In fact, in one of those cases, they didn't actually want to come work for me because the person had told them I was on shaky financial footing. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> and oh, and uh, but 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 I still I still think it's a good case study to say was I being honest and ethical? Like, what's my duty? So I'm I, I'm fulfilling my duty to the person who I'm pretty sure is being unethical, hmm. and I'm doing it at the expense of this poor salesperson. Yeah, who who doesn't know the truth. I stand by it and I would do it the same way, but I still think it's just healthy for me to have those kind of discussions. This is something that I've, I've heard you say multiple times. Well, every year you say this, but it always resonates with me when sales reps will ask like, we want to set goals so that our sales reps have more integrity when they're done working with us than when yeah. they started, right? So oftentimes you'll get really good people who are also high achievers who will say, well, I'm just kind of worried that I'm just, I don't have as much integrity as I want to have. And yeah. these, and I'll ask like, okay, why tell me the situations and they'll explain them. And whether or not I would have done the same thing in those situations, it, it's always reassuring to me that they're at least asking the question, right? Am I, am I honest here and genuinely meaning it? Right. And so that's something I've always appreciated that you've said is that the fact that you are worried about it is, is a good sign, I think. And that's kind of what I'm referring to as when I say, you know, I have to check myself as well is like, cause if the moment that I'm not worried about treating people as a means to an end, this is probably something that I'm hiding to myself about that, where I'm treating someone as a means to an end. Yeah. You know, so I've always appreciated that about the way you go about your business, Jason. Yeah. Well, thank you. First off. And yeah. um, I think that on the subject that it's important 
that we don't fall victim to groupthink. Mm. And what I mean by that is if, what I mean by that is really two things. The first thing, and this is kind of a preface, um, I think the most important part of ethical behavior, like you just pointed out, is that you constantly think about it and talk about it. Hmm. And you create a culture where it's considered. Right. Instead of just walking around saying, well, I have arrived. I, I am Plato's form of ethics, <laughs> like embodied into a person. So whatever I do, <laughs> good. what was Nixon's comment? Whatever the president does is legal. <laughs> you know, no, so like, whatever I do, that's ethical. Right. There that 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 is bad. So um so the flip side to that, I'm saying, I think it's healthy to have a culture and environment where you're questioning yourselves. Now to the group think. Hmm. You get a group of seven, eight, 10, 15 people in a room who all have the same huge financial vested interest in this being okay to do. It's amazing how the 10 or 15 of them are gonna reassure them how they can lie, cheat, can eat, you know, do these horrible things if they all agree that it's okay. Yeah. You can't vote in ethics. <laughs> You can't vote in morality. You can't vote in right and wrong, right? Yeah. That's why they're called unchanging principles. Right. So I'm saying that if you have a group of people, if it's you and me and three managers all in our company who get together and try to convince ourselves that our action is is ethical and moral, maybe maybe we're not the we need to bring someone else in that conversation. Hmm. So I have always had a group of friends. I have to this day, who I call and say, I need you to criticize this decision. Hmm. I, all I need to hear, I don't need to hear a yes. I just need the the, the backside. And then after, they, I'll tell them what I'm thinking, and then I have them criticize it. Hmm. And um, then I'll ask them what they actually think. Oh, that's cool. And I'm actually in the middle of some huge ethical things right now, like right now that have been going on now. And um, I've been calling friends like that, saying, "Hey, this is what I'm thinking." I need a contrary. I need I need someone not to be a yes man or yes woman. I need right. to hear some contrary views and opinions. And I've always found that very helpful. But I think that's a practice that I would recommend everyone employ. You've always done that? Yeah, I always have done that. Has yeah. it always been the same group of people or does that group change depending on where you're at? Oh, it definitely changes. I mean, like uh, two of the people in my closest inner circle have passed away in the last 6 months. Hmm. So by definition, it you know, that's going to Yeah. that's going to change. 3 of the closest people in my inner circle for those things that passed away in the last 19 months. So that, that, that's like, that was like three, almost two thirds of my circle. Hmm. So, uh, there are others that have been around. I have a couple that have been around for 10, 15, 20, even 25 years. Yeah. Um, but, uh, no, I have not had the same people. Interesting. Yeah. It's a, a practice that I think I've done naturally in certain occasions, but not as deliberately. Um, which makes me want to do that more. Yeah. Well, I'd encourage you. I think it's I think it's really yeah, it's helpful. Huge. So Hayden, a second ago you 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 talked about ethics and you talked about goal setting. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm kind of curious. Are, do you consider yourself a structured goal setting man, or are you put your head down and just bull forward? Uh yes. Yes to both, I would say. But um man, if I was trying to dissect my own processes, it would be set audacious goals that looking back in hindsight, I probably had no business uh, attempting to achieve that year, let's say. Sure. And then of the sheer failure and realization of how inadequate I was getting detailed about the next attempts towards those same goals. So I think for me, it has always kind of started with that bullheaded approach of like, I'm going to figure this out no matter what. Um, And typically like at the beginning, fairly unorganized, but utter determination towards the achievement of whatever those goals are. And then as I go through the process of attempting them, um, I'm always kind of formulating my first creation for those goals or like the blueprint for them along the way. But um, it's almost like after the first attempt is when I really am able to dial down like the specifics lessons that I've learned from the failures and the attempt to achieve those goals and then get very detailed about the next steps in order to execute. Um, I'm not sure if that makes, answers your question directly, but that's why I say both is because I I personally feel from my own perspective that that's kind of what I'm doing. But the, the element that's always consistent is no matter how long this takes, I'm going to figure out how to do this. Yeah. Um, Persistence. Yeah. Like 
you just don't give up. Yeah. And I, yeah. I think unlike most people my age, um, I don't have time, uh, timetables as ultimatums on achieving goals either. If that Good. makes sense. Sure. So yes, I set benchmarks that are time-based, but, um, yes, but if I don't achieve them, it's not like an ultimatum where like, yeah, I'm not trying this again. I'm going to go do something else. You just adjust the time base yeah. and just keep going. Yep. Yep. Would you say that's accurate based on what you've seen from me? Yes. I would say that's accurate based <laughs> on what I've seen from you. And I think it's, I think it's also helpful. I mean, for me, I found that I will try to set my goals as far down the road as possible, as clearly as I can. Mm. So in, in, since you brought up seven habits, I call that habit two. Yeah, begin yeah. with the end in mind. So try to envision the end of what you're doing. Right. In anything, in any role that you have. Since we're talking about business right now, it's like with with our company. Yeah. It's what is the actual value that you are bringing into the world? Why would people have your service instead mm. of someone else's? Why should someone work with you instead of work with someone else? And then the more you can feel, taste, smell, touch, and understand that, if you can define it, and that I call that the far off goal, then I found that as I set the short intermediary and short range goals, it's way easier and they come into focus. Yeah. Just like if you're looking at, you know, huh. a setting. So I try to be meticulous about setting the short short term goals and and I just reevaluate them depending on what how if we get them or not. Right. But I found that like the clearer you can think of the end the easier it is to set those goals and to be able to know what needs to be done in, in the now. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, as a point of uh, more about my process, as I'm listening to you talk, it's clarifying a couple of things for me. So I do find that I, I basically live in the future is how I feel. Um, and my wife would say the same thing. <laughs> my wife, and you know, Sarah, well, my wife is uh, very detail oriented, incredibly good at executing in the short term. And I'm very heavy on vision in the future and um, able to see it very clearly. So those far off things are, it's easy for me to get clear on them. Uh, not just the tangible things I want to build into my life, but also what my family is like and contribution and um, service and church and community and things like that. Um, so that's interesting because, but I feel incredibly emotionally attached to those long-term things and not so emotionally attached to the short-term objectives. They're more just like benchmarks. Sure. Um, but where I do want to be improving in my own process, and I feel like I have over time is getting more meticulous about the short-term. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Being maybe more, maybe being as committed to setting and evaluating short-term goals as you are committed to just being persistent in general. Yeah, because there's a the lot of energy balance between running through the wall with bullheaded terminus and then right being laser focused and meticulous in the goal setting in the process. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well put. Um, that is a, a weakness of mine that I, I feel like actively working on, even in the in the current now is getting much more serious and meticulous about short-term objectives and their achievement. Um, yeah, I think a specific example of where the rubber meets the road with what we're talking about would be like in my pest control service. Okay. So I have a, I try to have a vision of answering that question of what it should be, why, is, why should people work with us? Yeah. And then now tying that to ethics and morality, mm -hmm. the reason that's important to me yeah. is because if I am recruiting people to go sell a pest control service, then I think it should be important to them that the thing they're saying about that service is true. Hmm. And so ethically, I don't think that if you know your service isn't as good as another service, you should say that it is. Right. Or if you, or if, for example, in my service, if I don't think I have as fast of a response time as a competitor, whether the quality of my service is better, that is a that is a component of the service, right? right. I shouldn't say that it is. Right. So it's ten, it, that's what's easy. It, so that's why I don't want to put salespeople or office staff, office experts or field experts, I don't want to put anyone in an ethical dilemma hmm. of where they feel like they have to say something about our service that isn't true. Hmm. And so for me, it's really important that uh, we actually fulfill our obligations of that's inherent in our mission statement to improve the quality of lives you know, for everyone in every direction is associated with our service right. and then know how we're specifically doing that. Right. And I think everyone has to have the maturity and the wisdom and the self-actualization to realize in any given interaction with a customer, a potential customer or an employee with if what they're saying is true or not. Hmm. 
We don't need to stand up and lie about ourselves. In fact, I think it's unhealthy. So when we're not doing things as good as a competitor or we're not doing as good of things as what we say we're going to do, we need to own it. And it's that process that allows us to enact change. Yeah. But I think it's really, really damaging when we know that if you know that the service that you're selling or a part of just flatly doesn't do these things or falls short and you go get people to try to leave a service that is much better to go sign up for a service that's much worse. Yeah. We know that the person is going to get a, a, a worse return on their investment by signing up for, for the service I'm selling them and we sell it to them anyway. Why? Because I'm willing to treat that person as a means to an end because it's in my best interest because I'm gonna make money. Yeah. And that's what I mean. I don't wanna put people in that ethical dilemma. And so that makes me passionate about looking long-term, like what the value of my service is, yeah. and then being able to focus on the short-term goals of the things that need to be done today, this week, this month to make that a reality. Yeah, it's a perfect example. It's like that very clear uh, long-term objective. And then, okay, how does that long-term objective now specifically apply here and now? Yes, and in a, in a moral and ethical parameter. Right. Yeah. Right. I love that. Yeah, it's... Uh, it, it, what you, you said something interesting that caught my attention. If we... It's almost like if we ignore anyone in business, they if they ignore the truth or the reality, it's actually very difficult to change to what that long-term objective is. So right. if the long-term objective is to have the best service in the country, then, but you blatantly tell yourself the lie in the short term that you do, and maybe you don't, right? Then it's hard to actually have the best service in the country because you're just ignoring the things that you could change to, to get there. Yeah. Um, yeah. I had my sister on this podcast and she said one of her core values was clarity is kindness. And so uh, the same thing happens in employer reviews. It's very common that I'll attend uh, trainings or evaluations and the evaluator, the trainer wants to be polite and wants it to be positive. So someone will, will give a demonstration of whatever it is they're training on in whatever department. And the trainer will go, that was great. And I'll like immediately interrupt and say, that was not great. <laughs> so that's, that's not helpful to anyone in the room. You know, that's not great. I won't, I don't want, I don't demean them publicly, but we go talk about it afterwards. And the lesson there is you're not helping anyone mm -hmm. when you see something that's mediocre and you call it great. Yeah, you're only helping yourself really just so you can feel good about that interaction or- You're helping yourself in that short term. You're, mm -hmm. you're not helping yourself for your career. Yep. You're not helping yourself in the long term. Yep. You're, you're, you're literally crippling the organization, everyone around you. Yeah. When, when you are not going to be clear about what's actually happening. Clarity yeah. is kindness. I love that. So Absolutely. we don't lie to people. Uh, when we're giving them evaluations, that's mean. Yeah. And anyone who hears it, you're doing them a disservice. It's not clear and therefore not kind. And it's not ethical. Yeah. Right. It's not principle centered. Right. I love that. Um, a subject you brought up, I want to go back to okay. is I would like you to tell me some lessons you've learned from your best friend. You know who I'm talking about. I'm talking about your friend who's always honest. Your friend is truthful and merciful. Failure. <laughs> Failure, my best friend. Failure. <laughs> I like that. Uh, it was a nice setup there. The only, the only person you can truly trust <laughs> that is to true. tell it to you how it is. Oh man, the honest best friend. Um. So lessons that I've learned from failure. Yeah. So this is something that I've been thinking about quite a bit recently. Um. I'll just tell this is an anecdotal uh, you know, experience of how this kind of applies to me and I'll, I'll tie it in. Uh, I, I worked with a, a sales rep a couple of years ago that I personally felt, and he did as well and was vocal about it, that I had completely dropped the ball on helping him as a leader. And what this person didn't realize is that the, I had fairly good reasons to why I, I did not deliver on um, what I, had, I felt like I had promised to do as his leader. But those were unimportant to me because it didn't matter for him. Um, and so as I was thinking about this, I, I reached out to him the other day and said, hey, can we go get lunch so I can, I'd really like to just know more about what you went through in your experience so that I can be better for the next person like you that comes around because I really would like to help that person. The reason why I'm bringing this up is because the only way that I would get better at managing a person like that is by acknowledging the failures specifically, unemotionally even, and then being able to make plans, set commit, uh, make goals, you know, uh, set goals, make commitments to 
change so that I can compensate for those weaknesses and be better for that next person that comes around. It's like, like the sales rep. So failure is, I think, an even greater teacher than success because it specifically points out what you could have done to achieve the successes that you wanted or to achieve the goals. So I, I, this is more of a blanket uh, statement of what failure is, is it's, it's just, it is the greatest teacher because if you succeed at uh, achieving a goal, for example, you know, if I have an account goal with my region and I go hit that account goal, it's kind of hard to tell why you hit the goal. There might be a, a hundred or a thousand different reasons, but if I go s try to hit an account goal and I miss it, it's much easier to evaluate why I missed it and therefore make tweaks and changes, document them and build them into processes later. So I think failure is a more specific teacher of um, what is required to fill the gap between where you are now and who you could become in the future. Sure. Failure is the sense? road to success. Yeah. I mean, that, that someone, someone who's almost everyone I know who's achieved some level of financial or independent wealth success has a long road of failure that they've walked down. And they just realized that failure was their friend. <laughs> failure is what got them there. It was, it was listening to failure, not complaining about failure, listening, and then making the appropriate adjustments. Yeah. Which is what I think I hear you saying. Yeah. Spe speaking for you, I mean, success. Um, were you an instant success in this industry? No, absolutely not. No. <laughs> okay. Well, um, sounds like you've, you've, tell me more about your, your relationship with your friend again. With failure, my good friend. Uh, it's one comment just on what you said is like, you have to learn to love it. And I, that's a barrier that keeps people from progressing is not embracing the, the pain of the failure. And be grateful you know? for it. Yeah, very. Yeah. It, it is the only thing that reveals very specifically how to change, um, at least in my opinion. Okay, so when I started working at Moxie, um, I did door-to-door -door sales to pay for school. That was really the, the biggest reason why I wanted to do it in the first place. And then I saw some cool changes in myself while I was doing this very difficult thing of dealing with rejection all day and doing door-to-door -door sales, learning the skills of persuasion and influence in the process. But I was a less than average sales rep my first summer. Um, most people in my office were doing 250 to 300 accounts and some much more than that. And I finished at 191 was my, my first summer, but, and I was out there for longer than most of the guys in my office. Um, you just come and clean. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I just, I mean, I think failing to acknowledge that is like failing to help people who are in the same situation and could get where I am. Well um, said. But thank you. I, I was so determined to not have that be my last, um, attempt at doing this job that I, I wanted to do it again. And so I came back and I, I somehow got an offer to be a team leader. I think I was right on the threshold of the revenue mark to be a team leader that year, but I failed miserably as a team leader, didn't recruit the team that I wanted. And most people went home and it was just a, I've, I've acknowledged that I had dropped the ball in almost every way per my job description as a team leader. If I remember right. <laughs> You were also very frustrated again, similar to the way your first year. Your first year frustrated and sell what you wanted, and you didn't like that a lot. Yeah. And then when you went and recruited, it didn't go how you wanted. And I just remember that you really did not like the result. Oh, no. Even more furious than the first. first I just summer. want to point out that this is one of the common traits of the people who I've worked with that are successful. Hmm. So. I pointed out in the introduction to, to here that I've worked with, I don't even know how many former people now that I've mentored who are millionaires. You're one of them. Hope you don't mind me saying that. No, I don't mind. So that's why I, pre I appreciate you're sharing the path of how you became a millionaire. One of the main traits that I find the highly successful people have is that they are motivated by and they do not like failure and they don't quit. Mm. Meaning that when things don't go the way they wanted them to go, they double down, they get better at their process, they get more intense, and they come back stronger. Yes. And that's what, I, that's what I've seen from you, so please keep going. Thank you. And the, the thing I want to point out, too, is it's not an apathy towards failure, either. This isn't just like, oh, I failed, everything's fine. Like, I allow myself to get very frustrated um, on purpose because I understand the power of that emotion when I don't get what I want uh, in the short term, like my goals, you know? And as long as I've already determined that they're moral and ethical and principle centered 
or at least that that's my desire, then I go full on again to, to try. So the next year I, I um, recruited a team of 20 some people and we, we did very well that year. And I doubled my personal revenue as a sales rep. So that second summer as a team leader, I only improved my account um, sales by about nine accounts is all I did. Well, 10, I did 201 accounts, which was still very less, less than average. And so that following year, I doubled my, um, production at personally had an awesome team that really killed it. Uh, and then the next year was a divisional manager for you. And then we uh, have just kind of been growing since then, but, um, yeah, it's been full of that same process for me. It's like, attempt something, fail at it, get incredibly frustrated, borderline angry, <laughs> and then evaluate what I need to change and, um, you know, make steps to keep going. What, um, what advice would you give other than the advice you just gave yeah. to a young entrepreneur or high achiever or someone who says, I, I really want to be a millionaire. Please don't tell me to go buy crypto. <laughs> no, uh, no, I would never recommend that actually. And this is, you, I'm know, okay you, you know, you know a bit about my crypto stuff and I would still never recommend people go do that as a point of becoming a millionaire Yes, because it's short term wins like that, that are big are deceptive because they, you don't end up changing in the process for who you need to be in order to be a millionaire. Let's say, yes, I, um, what I'm asking, the question I'm specifically asking is what advice would you give to people who want to be, become an entrepreneur? or they're a high achiever in some other way and they want to become independently wealthy hmm. because of their behavior, what would you what would you recommend? Without thinking about this too much, I'm just gonna say the first thing that's come to my mind, my impulse, which is um, stop taking failure so personally. I love it. Yeah. So get train yourself to get into the habit of learning detailed and specific lessons from failure. Okay. And if you feel yourself getting emotional about those things, much like I did, I mean, I grew up, uh, I, I did not grow up in a family that had any sort of wealth by any means. And I, I've inherited some perfection, perfectionism traits from, <laughs> from my family that made it so they didn't take many risks. Um, at least that was my perception. So for me, I took failure very personally early. Uh, incredibly emotional about it. My advice if someone wants to build wealth independently, who they need to become is the type of person who can embrace failure like what you're saying and be able to learn specific lessons from it, document them, and then make actionable changes. And the fulfillment that you, what you feel as you make those changes is so addicting that it's hard to not love that process. Yeah, and, and all I would add to that, and I think you've already said it, is that I think it's important that as you're making those adaptations, as you're becoming frustrated, as you're becoming motivated, you can't cheat. Meaning <laughs> you still have to make sure that your highest priorities, your highest commitment yeah. is to principle-centered living, principle-centered governance. Yeah. <laughs> if, if, because once that's lost, it's impossible to become successful, no matter what you do. And by that, I mean, the worst thing you can do is you actually achieve wealth and you yeah. be, and you become a monster in the process, someone that your children and uh, your in-laws are just not gonna respect. Hmm. I believe that we adopt habits of non-principle-centered living, we're cursing our family perhaps for generations. And I can't almost think of anything sadder than to, yeah. than to develop an environment and a culture that is contrary to principle-centered living, that that's what you're teaching and then you become wealthy. How's that going to go for the next generation? Yeah, like inevitably those attitudes and behaviors are passed on and you can't even help it. Yeah. Yeah. And then you compound that with wealth, with wealth that you're passing on. It's not good. Yeah. It's not good at all. Well put. So the last question I want to ask is what do you do on the hard days? And I'm not defining the hard days as just one hard day. I'm saying I'm talking about hard periods of our lives. Hmm. Just when you're going through stuff that might be lasting months. Whatever that stuff is, we all have yeah. our we all have our shadows. <laughs> What's your process or recommendation? Without going into too much detail with this, mostly because I, I, I don't like talking about those hard things specifically because I hate getting people's pity. Yeah. I find when I try to be vulnerable about hard things, yeah. I end up just getting pity, and it just really frustrates me. So <laughs> it's I, not what you're after. Yeah, exactly. But um, I will just say that this hits home for me because I would, the last like five years of my life have felt in some sort of way like all hard days. 
in the way you're describing them. And the thing that helps me the most is to recenter constantly my life back on the things I care about most. Um, I'm going to say principle centered living, but just saying that doesn't actually describe like how deep I'm talking here. Like people won't understand it if that makes sense. So what I mean is I try to imagine on a um, very frequent basis, like, okay, so none of this actually matters. If what I'm going through right now makes me feel like nothing I'm doing actually matters. Business doesn't matter that much. Money doesn't matter that much. Cars don't matter that much. Nothing actually matters except for what's most important. My family, my relationships with the people that I love. Um, So I try to future pace myself to important moments, be they, you know, funeral or, uh, anniversary with my wife, like 50th wedding anniversary or something like far down the road and ask myself, like, what could I do today? Now I can't change my job. I can't go uh, quit and start a nonprofit like today, but right now as a vice president of sales for Moxie, even though I don't feel like that matters a ton for me in the moment, what could I do right now that would actually matter in 50 years, in 60 years? And that helps center me on behaving within my current roles in a way that I would really be proud of at the end of my life. Um, and it's the very thing that has provided a, a solid foundation for feeling like, you know, what I do actually could matter in the life of somebody else. So that's kind of how I get through the hard days. Um, <laughs> come to find out, I mean, that's probably a good way to live even not in the hard days. Right. But that's that for me, that's like a very important has been a pivotal thing. I don't, I don't know where I would be, um, have, had I not had that perspective or like constantly tried to remind myself of like, okay, what actually matters? I can't change anything about my life right now. My roles, nothing's changing. Yeah. So how would I behave today in a way that would actually matter? That's pretty deep and, and pretty personal. And, uh, Thanks for sharing. I think that's yeah. something I and I think everyone kind of can can relate to. So I know it, it's common that I'll take groups of managers at the beginning of training to a a assisted living facility, and we meet people who are who are uh, needing help to keep going because of age related things, and we just go in and meet meet them and talk to them, and that's the only. <laughs> then we get back together and say, "Who did you meet? What did you talk about?" And I don't know who's more edified by it, the people who are in the <laughs> homes or our people. I really don't. And then I just remind it, what did, what did they talk about? And inevitably they talked about their loved ones, yeah. how they wish they had more time with their loved ones, how much yeah. they miss their loved ones. We don't ever hear someone saying, I wish I made a little bit more money. <laughs> wish I had that promotion. There's a job that I didn't get that I really wish I wanted. Never heard it. Never yeah. heard it. And since that's the, that's the, that's the train that we're all on. It's helpful to remind ourselves in the here and now. Yeah. That as we think clearly how we want our lives to be at the end, what we want our relationships to be like, that should help us bring more into focus, like we said earlier, and more clarity of what we should be doing right now. Yeah. In Covey talk, that would be beating the end of mind, thinking of later, and quadrant two, yeah. being in quadrant two now, focusing on building and maintaining relationships. Yeah. Which is something I think that uh, you're really good at. Well, thank you, Jason. I appreciate that. What do you enjoy most about your career? That's a great question. Um, this is going to sound like I'm repeating things we've already talked about today, but it's it's true. I most enjoy. Well, I'll say something that I haven't said yet. The thing that really gets me excited about what I'm doing and what we're doing, my my career personally, is knowing that if I bring a sales rep into our program, a young man or young woman who's ambitious, who's a good, kind person um, and aspires to be something great in their life, that what by just stepping a foot in the door and doing the things that we teach that the course of their life is, will actually be drastically improved and their ability to help and influence people um, heightened in a way that it just otherwise couldn't have been had they not worked with us. And I've always said this, but 
lately over the last maybe two to three years, I've actually seen how like transformational that process can be for someone. And it's hard to see it in yourself. I've realized if I look back at my younger self, I'd say the same thing I'm like, yeah, Hayden, you've changed so much. I but can like, see it. <laughs> yeah, you've seen it. I remember the first time I met you in the old Moxie office. Like I, I'm a completely different person, but it's really fun and very fulfilling to watch that happen to other people who do it in the right way and who are principle centered yeah. and then gain this like lethal skill set of being able to persuade and influence people. And I say lethal just because I like, you know, it's kind of exciting term to say it that way, but it, it's, it it's like a Jedi mind. Trick. It is like Jedi mind tricks in the way that now yeah. that person has the ability to make a dent in changing people's lives, but also like the world as a whole with whatever they choose yeah. to do next. Yep. And knowing that I like played a very small part in that changing that trajectory. Um, you know, I, I really think about in the future, like it, it, the sales reps that work for me, if they could meet the version of them that didn't work for me, how much better that person would be. And if that's actually true and that really gets me excited. So that's the thing I enjoy most about my career. It's addicting. It's, it's really addicting. And like, the vehicle we do that in is really fun. I love winning yeah. at, at business in general, at sales, at all the things that require are required to, to do well at that. But like the real fun is watching that happen in the lives of the young men and the young women that we work with. It's it's um, helping to establish a, a place where people can begin their careers or if they're in the middle of careers, make changes hmm? to adopting a principle-centered foundation. Yep, absolutely. And it is transformational the word you used. Yep. It is transformational and it is fun mm -hmm. to see people take off and rise rise above above me. Yeah. Heights. Yeah, absolutely. So that's what I love most about my career. Uh what are you the most excited about moving forward? <laughs> um we've got some pretty audacious goals over the next 5 years um with my sales force and with as a whole as a company and I'm very excited to go achieve them. <laughs> I can't wait. I can't wait to watch, to watch and be a part of it. Yeah. That, I'm most excited about that. I'm excited about what that means for my family um, long-term. Yeah. Uh, the, the things that I, I think I'm actually, you know. And, and excited about what that means for the people who are part of your team, the people that you mentor. It's, it's fun to see them. Right. Just continue to elevate and to become more capable of taking on more and yeah. then achieving it. Yeah. Um, it's all those things I'm very excited about. Great. So uh, first, thanks for being here, Hayden, and for sharing your wisdom insight. I also am grateful for your friendship and uh, grateful that you're a part of my life. Uh, I, I, was, I think that people would be benefited from looking into you a little bit more directly and learning more about you. Maybe you can tell us a little bit more about where they can find you on your podcast that you have, your Instagram. Cool. Thanks, Jason. And likewise, I, um, I count it as one of the greatest blessings of my life being able to work for you in, in, this, in our program. So I, uh, for better or for worse, have a TikTok, an Instagram, um, and you can look me up on there. It's just Hayden Shap on all of them. I just started tweeting recently instead of writing notes of ideas. I just started sending them out into the ether uh, after some consideration. So you can find me on all those platforms. Um, I have a podcast with my jujitsu coach of all things, which has been really fun. It's cool to get perspective from someone that doesn't do sales and how we see the world the same. Um, and we're going to start having a lot of salesmen on that podcast. Okay. As, as a form of like, yeah, me and Rich as a form of like kind of fun coaching um, the guys that have done jujitsu with us. So that's the anti-fragile podcast. Um, yeah, that's where you can find me. Great. Thanks, Hayden Shap. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Jason.